Amen. Amen. You glad to be in God's house today? I hope you are. I'm excited. I'm excited enough for everybody in this room. I'll just give you a heads up. Hey, we are in week 13 of our message series, The Story. It's a series that we began in January. We're not going to finish this thing up until September. It's a series where we're looking at the Bible. We're looking at God's story from Genesis to Revelation from a 30,000-foot point of view. And we're using this book right here as kind of our guide. And and this book, the story, it's basically uh, the Bible. It's, it's the NIV. It's uh, chapters taken out of the Bible, arranged in chronological order, and then broken down into 31 chapters to help us understand the big picture story of the Bible, uh, which when you pull it all down, uh, the story of, of the Bible is God's passionate pursuit of a prodigal people. And that prodigal people would be me, and, and that prodigal people would would be you. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. That's what this book is about. It's about God's passionate. He ain't ever, no matter what, giving up on his ultimate desire to be with me and to be with you. Maple Grove, for 12 weeks, we have seen this passionate pursuit of God played out before very eyes in high definition. Yeah, and the lower story, God's people keep messing up, right? I mean, they, uh, they, they eat the forbidden fruit, they, they doubt his goodness, they disobey his commands, they reject him, they, they turn their backs on him, uh, they choose idols over him time and time again, and, and because of this, they're, they're kicked out of the garden, they're made slaves in Egypt, they're forced to wander in the wilderness, they're always oppressed by enemy nations, but in the upper story, God just keeps coming. God just keeps forgiving. God just keeps unfolding his plan of bringing his people back to himself, a plan that would find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask you, aren't you glad, aren't you feeling a little excited that the God we worship and serve is the God that will never give up on anybody, anytime, no way, no how? Aren't you excited that the God we serve has such an unrelenting love for you and for me that he will never give up on us. He won't give up on me. He'll never give up on me. He won't give up on me. He will never give up on me. And he won't give up on you either. (laughs) Repeat after me, loud with passion. He won't give up on me. He'll never give up on me. You know, we may give up on ourselves. People may give up on us, but he'll never give up on me. It's true. It's true. And we're in chapter 13, again, of the story, a chapter entitled, The King Who Had It All, and a chapter that I'm calling Finishing Strong. And and the conversation will center on the life of a guy named Solomon. He, he was the third king of Israel. He was the son of David and Bathsheba. But before we, we jump into Solomon's story, I, I want to read a passage of Scripture that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to, to write to the church in Corinth. And it's a, it, it's a chunk of Scripture that reminds you and I of why all these stories we keep looking at in the Old Testament are so very important to you and I today. And here's what Paul writes. Uh, Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. 
Do not become adulterers as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverently. We should not commit sexual morality as some of them did. And one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happen to them as examples are written down as warnings. And, and are warnings a good thing or a bad thing? I, I think they're a good thing. You know, and, and back in the day where I, I was keeping the world safe on, my, on the submarine, you know, that's why you slept so good in the 80s, you know. Now you know why. I told you that before, right? And, and, but, and, and Andrew, when I would go into an electrical panel and I'd open it up and there'd be this really shiny bar in there that looks like you just want to grab onto it and touch it, but there's a warning sign. Warning, don't touch, 450 volts. I'm glad they put that warning there, right? It, it wasn't to hurt me. So warnings are a good thing, right? These things happen to them as examples are written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, is that what you think today? I'm doing good. Got it going on. Be careful that you don't fall. Let's pray. God, we love you. No one like you. No one compares to you. Uh, you're not just coming, you're here. Uh, you're not just living among us, you're living inside of us. Uh, your word is not just ink on paper, it's supernatural. It's transformational, God. And, and Lord, I pray that as we, your people, gather around your word this morning, God, that we will hear your voice and we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear. And, and God has always helped me to say what you want me to say in the way that you want me to say it. And help us to respond the appropriate way. You're holy and you're mighty. You're good and you're great and you're kind. And you forever reign. Amen. Now, it doesn't happen often, but occasionally we'll be watching the news and a report will come on telling us of a plane that has crashed. And it's always disturbing if you're watching that because most of us fly every now and then. And some of us fly a lot. And whenever a plane goes down, it gets your attention, especially if... You have to be flying out on the, the very same airlines the next day. I mean, it's nerve-wracking enough to get in a metal tube at 30,000 feet and go 500 miles an hour, but when one goes down, it's pretty scary. And oftentimes, you know, there's wreckage and carnage and debris spread out all over the place. And whenever a plane crashes, they always tell us that they're going to try to figure out what happened, what went wrong by trying to find the what? The a little back box, that indestructible box. And I got a thing this week, if it's so indestructible, why don't they make the whole plane out of it? You know, but make, <laughs> but I, that probably wouldn't work anyhow. But did you know that the little black box isn't actually black? It's what? It's bright orange. Why? So that you can find the sucker easier. And inside that black box is the data that will tell the story what happened to the plane. And listen, when they open up that black box and when they retrieve the data, they're trying to answer two questions. What went wrong? And how can we make sure it doesn't happen again? And you know what? That's kind of part of what we've been doing as we've been studying the story. We've been looking at the black boxes of various people in the Old Testament. We've been retrieving the data. And in so doing, we've learned of some of the things that led to all the wreckage and the carnage and the debris. We find out, hey, what led to their crash to begin with? So last week, we looked at David, right? And we opened his black box, and we saw all the things that led to his crash. And this week, we're going to 
recover and open up and retrieve the data from the black box of a guy named Solomon. A guy who, like the title of chapter 13 of the story reads, a guy who had it all. I mean, this guy was flying high. He started out so well, but in the end, his crash and his burn was so much greater than David's. I mean, it left debris and wreckage and carnage all over the landscape of his life and all over the landscape of the nation. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we, we see some of that wreckage described. It says this, that Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He, he did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molak, the detestable god of the Ammonites. That was the god where you would take babies and sacrifice in the belly of this guy, god and burn them alive. He did the same for all his foreign wives who, turned, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Yeah, I mean, the wreckage is everywhere. It's everywhere. On every high place, he, he's building altars to, to foreign gods. He's following detestable gods. And, and the kingdom was going to be torn away from him. And, and listen, the, the wreckage and carnage long outlived Solomon because not only would the kingdom be torn from him, but as we'll see next week in our study, the kingdom would be torn apart. I mean, wars and destruction and death and ruin for hundreds of years because of the choices that Solomon made. And, and listen, as Solomon began to crawl through the wreckage of what had now become his life, he grabs out his journal and he takes a pen and he writes out the following. We have his journal. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And he writes this. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Everything is wearisome beyond description, no matter how, how much we see, we're never satisfied. And no matter how much we hear, we're not content. Meaningless, wearisome, never satisfied, not content. Doesn't seem like a pleasant place to be, right? And the question I want to ask as the breaking news story, King Solomon, life crashes, flashes across the TV screen, and, and it's showing me image and image of wreckage and carnage. The question I want to ask is, how did it happen? How did a guy that was up here end up down there? I, I mean, he had it all. He was flying so high, he had such an incredible start. But as a, a guy named Steve Ferrars wrote in his book, Finishing Strong, in, in the Christian life, it, it's not how you start that matters, it's, it's how you finish. Uh, there's three points in your notes today, um, the start, the crash, and the takeaway, and they're not balanced, all right? They're imbalanced because I'm imbalanced, right? They're, 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 some are longer, some are shorter. And like I was saying, you know, he had an incredible start. I, I don't know if anyone ever started out as well. I don't know if anybody ever flew as high as this guy at the beginning. He had a great start. Uh, he had a great dad, for one. 
I understand fathers are important in raising our children. And yeah, I know the media and our culture tries to minimize that importance, but they're wrong. And Solomon was born in the home of King David. And, and now David, as we know from last week, you know, David wasn't a perfect guy. And you and I, we can look at his life and say, point out all his failures. And, and we can summarize his life. But really, the only summary that matters, the only analysis that matters is God's. And here's what God said about his life in Acts chapter 13. He says, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. And then Acts 13, verse 36 I love this verse. David served God's purpose in his own generation. Then he died. I mean, Solomon's dad, he had a dad that loved God. He had a dad that chased after God's heart. And let me tell you, when when this dad handed over the the kingdom to Solomon, he handed over a a kingdom that was in incredible shape. Uh, They were united under one flag. Uh, They had a powerful and well-respected military Their boundaries have been increased from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. They were financially sound, no $17 trillion debt hanging over Solomon. And the nation was hungry for God and for righteousness, and David's psalms and songs could be heard being sung throughout the land. He had a great dad. He received great advice. After conquering lions and bears and Goliath and King Saul and the Philistines and all enemies, both foreign and domestic. David was facing an enemy that, that he couldn't conquer. It was death. And one day, David gathers his son by his bedside, and, and he says this to his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong. Act like a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commandments, his laws and regulations as written the law of Moses. Do this. So that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And the, that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you'll never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. And, and Solomon, I love this part. And Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Talk about great advice. Learn to know God intimately. In the garden, Jesus said what? This is eternal life that they may what? Know you. Worship and serve God, not with a divided heart, but with all your heart. Seek him. Walk in obedience to him. Be strong and act like a man. Man, he was flying high, a great dad, great advice, and he made a great request. After Solomon became king, he, he went to Gibeon, and, and that's where the tabernacle was, and he went there to offer sacrifices to God. Scripture says that he offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar, and that that night, God appeared to Solomon, who at the time is probably 17 or 18 years old, right? Remember, David and Bathsheba, they got together late in David's life, so he's 17 or 18 years old, and I tend to think he's kind of like freaking out big time. Like, I'm taking over from my dad, this huge empire. And I've been given the job to build the very first temple of God. And up to this time, the only thing Solomon ever built was a fort in his backyard, and the roof came in one week later. And he's totally freaking out, and God comes to him and says, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Whatever you want, Solomon, I'm going to give it to you. 
Now, how sweet is that, right? I mean, what'd you ask for? More money, long life, and no, you cannot ask for a thousand more wishes, right? That's not an option. No, I like to ask for that. Now, Lord, my God, you've made me your servant in place of my dad, but I'm only a little child. I'm only 17, 18 years old. I don't know nothing, okay? I don't know how to do this. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who's able to govern this great people of yours. And then God gave him wisdom. I mean, God downloaded a huge database of knowledge and wisdom into him such that, that he was the wisest person that ever lived. He, he was, I like to call him the S-G-I-E-R. He wasn't just the smartest guy in the room. He was the smartest guy in every room. Everywhere he went, he knew more than anybody else. What a start. You know, a, a great request, great advice, a great dad. And he completed a great project. Like I said, you know, he's the guy who built the temple for God. The place where God's presence would dwell, a huge project. 180,000 people were involved in this seven-year project. And Scripture goes into great detail about the temple. And to be honest, it's not the most exciting reading, right? Unless you're an architect or something, right? And, the, and we don't have time to get into it. But one piece of trivia before we move on. Do you know how much gold was used in the temple? According to 1 Chronicles 22, 14, David laid aside 100,000 talents of gold, okay? One talent is 75 pounds, okay? 100,000 talents is 7.5 million pounds, or 3,750 tons, or 120 million ounces of gold. At 1,400 bucks per ounce, $168 billion. Fort Knox only has 170, 147 million ounces of gold. That's crazy. That's a lot of gold. But listen, the most awesome thing was not the gold that was, the temple was made of. It was when God's presence came to dwell inside of it, and thousands of people have gathered for this ultimate ribbon-cutting ceremony. And we read this, The priest then brought the Ark of the Covenant to the place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and they put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Then the, the priest then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians stood at the east side of the altar, dressed in fine lidding and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. It's a huge band. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. The singers raised, thousands of them raised their voice and praised the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. He is good. His love endures forever. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the temple of God. I mean, God's presence was so thick that all they could see, they couldn't even move. All they could see was God's glory. I mean, can you imagine the energy, the excitement, the joy that was in that place? Later that day, they would sacrifice 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. I mean, Nobody went hungry uh, that day, right? Everybody ate good. Old Testament professor Doc Smith wrote that without question, the dedication of Solomon's temple was the grandest ceremony ever performed in the Old Testament. 
I mean, he completed, he's flying high. Great project, great request, great dad, great advice. He had a great prayer life. Man, we don't have time to read it. I encourage you this week to open up to 1 Kings chapter 8, and you can read about 50 verses. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he cries out to God. It's a powerful prayer. I mean, he was totally connected to God. He, He wrote three great books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And and by the way, there's some great romantic lines in the Song of Solomon. I I still remember that night walking around the lake with my wife, Laurie, looking in the eyes and saying to her, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Man, I had her coming from its washing. Not one of them is missing. Babe, you got all your teeth. <laughs> your neck is like the Tower of David, built in all its eloquence, and on it hang a thousand shields. And she told me, babe, you had me at hello. <laughs> he wrote awesome things. He wrote these words here in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he'll make your path straight. Two times he wrote this. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. He wrote this twice, the prudency, danger, and take refuge, but the simple, keep going, and suffer for it, and suffer for it. No, you, you wouldn't expect A guy who had it all, a guy who was flying so high, a guy who had a great dad, a great prayer life, made a great request, completed a great project, wrote three books of the Bible. You wouldn't expect a guy who had such a great start to crash and burn in such a destructive way, but he did. But he did. Next point, the crash. I don't know if you noticed that you know, a good start isn't always enough. And nothing wrong with a good start, but it's not always enough to get you across the finish line or into the winner circle. If you don't believe me, you could ask the 1969 Baltimore Orioles. That, that's, uh, that's Earl and Frank there, all right? I just started watching baseball back then. And they won 109 games that year, dominated everybody. Their opponent in that series were the Mets, and everybody expected them to beat the Mets. They won game one. Everyone thought it was in the bag. Four games later, it's not the Orioles celebrating. It's the Mets jumping on the field. They won. And in 1969, the Orioles and all of Baltimore were convinced of the truth that a good start isn't enough, as were the 2007 New England Patriots who had a great start. I mean, undefeated, baby! All right? Right there, my team. Every game, 16 and 0. They won the first two playoff games. And they were winning the first 3,565 seconds of Super Bowl 42. A great start. I mean, the first 68,365 seconds of 2007 were theirs. But in the end... But in the end, the final 35 seconds was all that mattered. What a catch. I hate that catch. Well, how did that dude get away? How did Eli get away? Eli was born that day as a quarterback, and my team lost. And Baltimore was my team. A good start's not enough, right? And our time remaining, I, 
I want us to open up the black box of Solomon's life and try to answer two questions. What went wrong? How do you go from here to there? And what can be done to keep that from happening to us? I understand. Uh, no one ever sets out to wreck their life. It kind of happens slowly, right? Like a, like a frog in a pot of water. As I was working on my message this week, a, a song by Casting Crowns kept playing in my head. They have a song called Slow Fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Is that how it is in your life? Thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid. People never crumble in the day. Daddies never crumble in the day. Families never crumble in the day. It's a slow fade. See, we don't set out to wreck our lives. I've done a lot of weddings, and, and nobody ever stood up here and said, you know what? You know, I... I say, how this is going to end. We're going to curse each other and hate each other and maybe have the police called in for domestic, domestic abuse. No one sets out to do that. Uh, they set out to love and honor each other for better, for worse, and sickness and health, right? But listen, there are decisions and steps and choices that can lead even the best of people to crash and burn in the end. And I want to share a few of the decisions, steps, and choices that Solomon made that are on the data of his flight recorder, how he messed up. And if we want to mess up, if we want to crash and burn like him, I, I, I want to tell us how, here's how we do it, right? And number one, if we want to crash and burn, we need to leave wiggle room in our commitment. Solomon does just this in chapter 3. It says Solomon showed his love for the Lord by, by, by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David. What's the next word? Except. Now, we don't even need to read any further, right? I mean, once you read that word except, you know the guy's in trouble. He, he showed his love for God. He followed God except. Except he offered sacrifice and burnt incense on the high places. And the high places were the places where the people who lived in the promised land before God's people, it's where they worshiped their first idols, false idols. And God told them in Deuteronomy, when you go in there, I want you to destroy completely every high place. But they didn't. Instead, they began to use them as places to worship God, at least at first. I mean, they, it was just such a nice location and such a scenic view. And, 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 and they were so much closer and more convenient than going all the way to the tabernacle to worship God, where God said you had to worship him. Again, he showed his love for God. He followed God, except. And, and guys, I, try this one at home. Baby, I love you, and I am going to be faithful to you, except. See how it goes. <laughs> you see, it doesn't matter what we say next, does it? Understand, there's no such thing as partial commitment. God said, destroy these high places completely. They instead decide, you know what, let's just do a little remodel job, kind of paint over some stuff, stick a different label on it, and we'll just worship God right here. And sure, they may have met well, and their intentions may have been good, but intention is not the same thing as obedience. Remember, direction, not intention, determines our destination you see, they were still not following God completely. And listen, when we begin our walk with God with an exception clause, we'll never arrive at full devotion. 
I think John Ortberg was the first guy I heard say this, that 95% devotion to God is 5% too short. We're like, hey, 95% is pretty good. Oh, really? Okay, imagine you're being wheeled into um, an operating room for surgery. And just as they're wheeling you in, you look up and you see a sign that says, our operating equipment is 95% sterile. What are you going to do? Tell you what, I'm going to hop off that table, make sure my butt's not hanging out, and say, call me back when you're at 100%, all right? I'm not going in there. You see, God wanted to create a healthy, sterile environment for the growth of his people. But Solomon thought almost partial commitment was good enough. And that led to a few spiritual germs coming in and eventually affecting his entire life. Yeah, one sure way to crash and burn in the end is to allow a little wiggle room in our commitment. Question, are, are you trying to follow God with an exemption clause? Exception clause? Steve loved God and he followed God except another decision that will lead us to crashing and burning is to assume that we are an exception to the rule. Like I said, smartest guy in every room. He knew what God commanded. He even wrote some of those commands down. He knew that God said, uh, if you obey me, it's going to go good. If you're not, it's not going to be so good. Solomon knew that, that obedience mattered to God. I mean, his dad even reminded him on his deathbed, son, walk in obedience to God. But obviously, Solomon decided that these rules somehow did not really or actually apply to him. Three, four examples of what God commanded and what Solomon did. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says, here's the rules for the king. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. What Solomon actually did. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. And he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Well, God, great. How, what's great? God is, you know, it's, and you know where he got those horses from? Where do you think he got them from? Got them from Egypt. What God commanded, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. What Solomon actually did, King Solomon ever loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He had 700 wives of real birth and 300 concubines and his wives led, that's, do the math, that's a thousand. There's only 365 days in a year. <laughs> what God commanded, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. What Solomon actually did, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Kind of interesting number. I don't know. And kind of, And uh, by the way, that's $1.1 billion. You know, 800,000 ounces of gold. Not including, <laughs> that's just part of it, that revenues from merchants and traders and from the Raven kings and the governors of the land. The king made silver as common as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees in the foothills. I mean, it even says, you read, I don't know if you read, we're like, he collected apes and baboons. Like, what, what do you think you are, Dr. Doolittle? I mean, but he collected apes and baboons. I mean, and th there's no question that he assumed, you know, hey, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I, I know what God, I'm not disagreeing with you. God said not to do this. You know, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I know what it says, but I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> it doesn't really apply to me. And listen, when we know what God says, we know his commands. And for some reason, we assume that they don't apply to us, our plane is on a downward descent. Yeah, I know that God commands me to, to love my wife as Christ loved the church, to forgive the people who hurt me, 
I, I know that God says I, I'm to bring the whole tithe to the storehouse and not my leftovers to him. I, I, I know that, that God says that I'm to maintain my sexual purity, to reserve sex for a man and woman who both have a ring on the finger and both have said I do. I, I, I know that, that God has said that I'm to serve in the church, I'm to share my faith. I know that God says I'm to control my tongue, but um, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I know that's what it says. I'll get it right on the pop quiz, God, but I'm just not going to do it. Boom. A, a third malfunction we see on the data recorder is that Solomon began looking for life in all the wrong places. And as you read through his journal, Ecclesiastes, it's so easy to see, man, this guy was looking for life in all the wrong places. And again, I'm like, why? How did that happen? I mean, how could the smartest guy in the world, you know, start to look for life in such a life-draining place in places as he looked in. You know, something hit me this week as I was studying Solomon's life. You know, he's king at 18. First 11 years, his purpose was clear, right? Build a temple, build a temple, build a temple. And he, he has it built before he's 30. The only problem was he had 29 more years to reign. And I think this is where his focus began to slip and his intimacy began to slip away. You see, he actually thought that the purpose was a building. Build the temple when really the purpose was God's glory or the purpose was to walk with God. The purpose was intimacy with God. He thought he lost his purpose. He thought he lost his reason. And then he began to look in all the wrong places. He writes in his journal that he tried to find meaning in education. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, Ecclesiastes 1.7, and also madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. It didn't work. He tried to find meaning and pleasure. You know, he took the Charlie Sheen philosophy of life. Man, let's just party hard. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. He tried to find meaning in alcohol, and, you know, to numb his mind uh, uh, from the pain of life. He said, I tried cheering myself with wine. He tried to find meaning in his accomplishments. Uh, I, I undertook many great projects. He tried to find meaning in his stuff. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. I, I was on the cover of Fortune 500, the cover of People. I had more money. I was number one in the world. I amassed silver and gold for myself. He tried to find meaning like his dad in his sex life. I acquired a harem as well. He sure did. I think a thousand, that would qualify as a pretty good size harem. The delights of a man's heart. I denied my heart nothing my eyes desired. I refused no pleasure. Education, pleasure, accomplishments, alcohol, stuff, money, success. It sounds like what our world is chasing after. I mean, those are the places that so many people in our world, and maybe even some in this room think, you know what, that's where I'm going to find contentment. That's where I'm going to find satisfaction. That's where I'm going to find purpose and meaning and happiness. That's what Solomon thought. And then he writes in his journal, yet when I surveyed all my hands had done and I told to achieve everything was meaningless, and a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Maple Grove Solomon had more of those things, 
more education, more sex, more pleasure, more money, more stuff, more accomplishments than anybody in this room will ever have. All of us added together, and it did not work. It was meaningless. He gained nothing in the end. It was like chasing after the wind. You ever try to do that? I know that looks silly, but sometimes I think, you know, we ought to try to do that. To let it burn in our mind how silly it is to look for life. Looking for meaning in those things makes about as much sense and logic as running outside and trying to catch the wind. See, there's only one place we'll find life and purpose and meaning for everything, absolutely everything, uh, above and below, visible and invisible. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. Rick Warren wrote in his book, Purpose Driven Life, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams or ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we begin at the wrong starting point ourselves. And we ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for my future? But focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. Wow, there are some serious, important, critical data on Solomon's flight recorder that answers the question, how this guy went from here to here? How somebody flying so high crashed and burned and ended up with wreckage and carnage everywhere you looked. As we retrieve the data, we see another way we can screw our life up. Fail to address areas of struggle. Uh, do you have any areas of struggle in your life? Solomon did. I already said earlier, it, it was the same as his dad had. His big area, right? Yeah, Solomon loved women. He loved lots of women. King Solomon ever loved many foreign women. They're from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And then we read this word, nevertheless. Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. I mean, he knew it was wrong. He knew it wasn't something that God wanted him to do. He knew that God said in Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, not be united to your 700 wives and 300 concubines. He knew it was wrong, but nevertheless, he kept taking a bite of that forbidden fruit. Question, do you know anyone of who sin has a hold of? I mean, they know it's wrong. I mean, they know it's destructive. They know that, that what they're doing is not what God wants. Nevertheless, 
They go for it. Nevertheless, they jump in. Nevertheless, they take the bite. Understand, Solomon knew it was wrong. He was the smartest guy in every room. But listen, spiritual strength is not simply about knowing the will of God. It's about doing the will of God. It's not simply about knowing. Guys are like, hey, Steve, you know, again, I'm glad you got the answer right on the quiz. Good job. (laughs) How about living the sucker out? Quick question. What are your areas of struggle? If you don't have any, I know one of them. You're a liar. (laughs) So put that on your list. I mean, is it pride? Is it anger? Is it your tongue? Is it your attitude? Is it in the area of sexuality? Is it in your love for money and stuff? What is your area of struggle or areas? And what are you, what are you doing about it? I mean, be honest about it. Three things. Be honest about it. Be accountable. I mean, find somebody and say, you know what? I struggle with this. <laughs> and my, my plane is going to crash and burn. Uh, it's heading down that way. Will you help me pull this sucker up? You know, be honest. Be accountable. And memorize some scripture about it. Maybe at least three in area of struggle. I remember doing this with a, a person who lived with us for several years who had a tr- trouble with anger. I mean, really bad. And he memorized one of the scriptures was Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Second anger, he drank milk. We should have bought a cow. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) he's drinking another gallon of milk. Uh, The fifth thing we see on this flight recorder, if we want to Crash and burn our life. Ignore corrective words from God. Uh, right after the, the temple was, was built and the great prayer and God's Holy Spirit filled it, God, knowing Solomon, knowing what was coming, knowing he had this wiggle room, he, he tried to warn him and reminded him that, you know what, if you guys don't follow if you don't follow me and, and the people don't follow me, it's going to get bad in this temple, you know, that you're so impressed by. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be rubble. And people are going to look at it and see it in destruction and say, why did this happen? And people are going to say, well, it happened because we forsook God. He didn't listen. And then when God showed up at the crash site, as he's laying amongst the debris, and God is saying, Solomon, you're doing evil in my eyes. Solomon, you're worshiping these false gods. Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. Solomon, you have sinned greatly. Do you remember what David's response was when he, we saw last week when he sinned against God? First thing out of his mouth, six words, I have sinned against God. Well, unfortunately, that was not Solomon's response. I mean, Scripture doesn't say that he repented. We, we don't read anywhere that Solomon said, you know what, God, I'm going out there. I'm getting my army right now. We're going to go to every high place, and we're going to smash every idol. We're going to grind up those idols just like Moses ground up the golden calf. Don't read about it. Don't read about it. In fact, what we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 40, is that Solomon actually tried to kill Jeroboam, the guy who God was fixing to give the kingdom to. And rather than repent it, he tried to kill the instrument of God's judgment. 
You know, I, I like to think that if God showed up and spoke to me, that I would listen. Wouldn't you? I mean, we open the black box of Solomon's life, we can see how things turned out, how he got from where he was to where he ended up. And if we leave wiggle room in our commitment, if we assume, you know, they don't really apply to us, if we look for meaning in the wrong places, if we fail to deal with our areas of struggle, if we ignore God's corrective words, same will happen to us. Now for the takeaway. Here's the final entry in Solomon's journal. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is a whole duty of man. How do we keep from crashing and burning? We fear God and, and we, we obey his commandments. And to be honest, I, I'm not sure what happened after he wrote it. We don't know. I mean, were those words of repentance or were those words of regret and remorse? We don't know. I, I do know that he's not mentioned in Hebrews 11, but a lot of people aren't. So, so I don't really know what happened next. I, I don't know his heart in writing those words, but, but here's something that I do know. Is that there is still time to finish strong. Understand, if you are alive and breathing today, you know, I screw up so many times and literally sometimes I wake up and I'm so thankful that I'm alive. That God didn't kill me a few days ago. That I got a chance to wake up and get this thing right. I have a chance to pull my plane up out of the nosedive that it's in. God wrote these words in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And it takes humility, right? Okay, God, you know, the, God, you know what? I, I, I am, my plane is headed down. And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Amen. See, there's still time to finish strong. In 1982, uh, a college student named Julie Moss, she, she, she ran, she competed in, in her first Ironman competition in Hawaii. And, and uh, she never competed in one before, and she went in some training. And it's kind of crazy, you know, you swim like two and a half miles, which we like really hard. <laughs> and then get out of the water, hop on a bike, and bike 100 miles. And if you haven't like abused yourself enough, put on your sneakers and run a marathon. And the last mile of the marathon, she's in first place, 20 minutes ahead of the nearest girl competitor. And then she hit the wall, and she just collapsed, and she tried to get up. You can watch it on, you can Google it and watch it. I watch it several times, and she falls down. She's going limp. They pick her up. She pushes people away because she doesn't want their help, but she tries to go again. She's about 75 yards from the finish line, and she can't get up. But she wants to finish the race, and she crawls. Here's a picture. That's how she finished the last 75 yards. She crawled to finish the race. It's not too late. It's not too late for me. It's not too late for you. 
It's not too late for anyone in this room. You may be tired. You may be broken. You may be beaten. You may have messed up last night. You may have messed up this morning, but it's never too late. I don't care if you're crawling on your knees. It's never too late to finish strong. Praise God you're alive today because you can still finish strong. Today you can say, you know what, God? God, I'm pulling the nose of my life up. No more wiggle room. No more assuming that what I know doesn't apply to me. No more chasing the wind and looking for life in the wrong places. No more failing to deal with my sin and my struggle. I'm going to get honest. I'm going to get help. And no more ignoring the warnings of God. I am going to finish strong. Amen. We're going to sing a song and and I'm just going to pray that as we sing it, you just allow God to speak to you. You know, this is a, a huge day in a lot of lives in this room, you know, because God, want, it doesn't matter if you're winning, if you lose the last 35 seconds like the Patriots, right? What matters is how you finish. And everyone in this room has started. No one in this room has finished yet. And we can still finish strong with God's help. If you need prayer, you can come forward every week. Our elders are up here during the commitment time, and they'll be up here after church to pray with you if you need prayer. But let's stand. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. Father God, we love you so much. And, and God, we're so screwed up, and, and we do stupid things, and we ignore what you tell us. And even today, God, you're warning some of us and that, wow, you're doing what Solomon did, and you... Shouldn't do that. And we're like, uh, that's all right. I'll be okay. I can, I'll be fine. It'll be, all, it'll be all right. It'll be good. And God, I pray that we sing right here and you know, we talk about surrender, that we're not like, hey, God, I surrender 95%, God. But this moment, if we truly surrender it all, we can know, God, that, man, our plane is not in a nosedive. God, we can know that at this moment, we are gaining altitude. In Jesus' name, amen.